Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain with your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. Episode 56, Designer Memory. Welcome back to the podcast, where we, in the words of Walter Benjamin, regard it as our task to brush history against the grain. I am one of your hosts, Josh Weiner, and with me, as always, Chris Paget. Welcome back, Chris. Thank you, Josh. Uh, it's certainly good to hear your voice. It seems like it's been a minute since yes. we took to the uh, to the airwaves, but it is definitely good to hear your voice. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm on campus. A mere steps away from your office. Everything looks fine from the outside, I'll say. Inside might be a trash fire, but in outside, the walls look, the door looks clean. Your posters are still up. It hasn't been desecrated anyway. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually in my office, which I've been doing for the past four or five months, something like that, oh since, since the semester started. That's so strange. I'd assume that American River College had been turned into a kind of tourist curiosity, maybe like a ghost town. It's got a v- real ghost town vibe. I'm sure there's people here. There must be people here because there's cars in the parking lot. I don't actually see anybody. So it, it very much feels like I just, I come uh. to this building and I'm, I'm solo. Uh, it's almost like a Scooby-Doo mystery. If I spend the night here, I, I get the, uh, I get the building <laughs> or something like that. Wait I mentioned minute, to you actually, you my, yeah. Well, you didn't get severed, did you? <laughs> I get severed, no. Sorry for the reference, but I know you watched that program on Apple oh, Plus about the, the so workers good. whose memories are bifurcated uh, and what they do at work. They can't remember who they are in real life. And when they're living their normal lives, they can't remember what they've done at work. So I just wanted to check to make sure that, uh, that you no, haven't, I haven't been. been but but I think we, we this will be a severed pod, severance podcast from, from here on out. I'm sorry if people like the history stuff, but we're just going to be talking about a TV show from now on. Um, no, but I, to, I told you that the, the first day back teaching, I was walking down the halls, you know, where the classrooms are, and they've got mm-hmm. these, video bo- these video boards, these screens, and, you know, the screens will have, like, announcements, and then there's, like, a news feed that scrolls along the bottom. And I look up, and the, the, the scroll said, as of March 13th, the campus is closed until further notice. So it's, it had been two years since I'd been back <laughs> and they hadn't changed the crawl, which gave it a real kind of zombie apocalypse kind of feel. Mm-hmm. Like I was wandering through, mm-hmm. you know, a, a dead world trying to survive. And there are these little echoes or memories of, of the world that was. Um, it got more normal after that, but that was a, a strange experience to, uh, to have yeah. in that, that first day. That's pretty uh, pretty eerie. It's like the clocks that stopped with a great San Francisco earthquake or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, exactly. and look, it's been now what? It's been uh, more than two years because that was March of uh, 2020. And here yeah. we are now in, in May. So that's a good, what, 14 months or so? Or 20, 26 months, excuse me. 22 yeah. years and two months. So uh, how's it all look to you? You know, it's... It's been good. So if everybody remembers, right when the semester started is when we were getting the, um, the Omicron was was hitting. And so we were supposed to go back as normal and then it got pushed back. 
ended up being about six weeks before things kind of settled down. They felt secure enough uh, letting us back in the classroom. And so uh, basically, you know, I got half a semester, a little more than half a semester in. And I got to tell you, it was it was invigorating. I'll say that, um, you know, I, I, at this point, because we've, we've taught online for so long um, and so intensively for the past two years in particular, I feel like I can do a lot of what I would do in the classroom, you know, through a computer screen, through Zoom, you know, through discussions, all that kind of stuff. But I, I was telling somebody this the other day. You can kind of replicate some of what you do in the classroom, but you can't replicate like the the feeling of it, the 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 vibe, the um, the uh, the adrenaline of it. Right. Um, so like I, I could be saying the same things. I could be getting the same kind of discussion as online, but just the the fact of kind of being in the classroom with living, breathing students whose face you can see are in front of you who react <laughs> and you can see their reactions in the moment um, was uh, was really nice. And especially because our enrollment is way down, which uh, is bad for the college, I assume, but it's great for us as, as instructors. I only had 13 students in uh, two, two classes on the ground, on ground and 13 students in each class, which meant, you know, functionally, that's like, you know, 10 or 11 show up any given day, every once in a while, all 13. Um, but it was such a, a, a great atmosphere, I felt like, because it was informal and it was friendly. And the stu I talked to, was talking to another professor I ran into here, um, and she was saying that the the way the students interacted was even even felt different. Like they were making connections much more quickly than 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 normal. Um, and so just the, the overall vibe of the classroom was just so nice, particularly after that period of of no real, you know, face to face social interactions, especially with students. It was uh, it was it was fun. I mean, that's what I'll, that's how I'll finish this is that it was really fun to just be there and be with students. And um, and I think both myself and the students really got something out of, of being back, you know, in this kind of physical space with people all around us. Well, you know, I, I'm glad to hear that because it's a job we both love and, and have missed. I know. Um, yes. You know, pod, pod, podcasting has been, you know, a, a, a sort of a distraction in some ways, you know, from, from the normal routine of teaching uh, and has offered some, I guess, some of the spontaneity and and uh, yes. sort of live feel, even though we obviously record the episode and you do a bit of uh, of editing. Pretty much what our listeners get is 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 what goes in, you know, warts and all. But uh, so yes. let me ask you that. I have a couple of questions, if you don't mind. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you have legal counsel there with you, but I, I do have some questions. <laughs> Is uh, well, first of all, you know, when athletes are gone on an extended break and have to come back, say from injury or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and keeping in mind that we're now two two years older, twenty twenty six months older. Uh, Actually, I feel like, like I'm six years older, but yes, I guess that <laughs> mathematically I'm two years older. Yes, <laughs> we're immeasurably older as a result yep. of this. That um, we're the relative age of the dinosaurs now. I think that. Uh, Huh. Well, that, you know, have you lost a step? In other words, uh, you know, athletes always talk about, and I, I consider us to be, you know, uh, professional performance athletes in the classroom, right? You know, we're both Heat condition, yeah, yeah. calorie burning teachers, you know, uh, with fast yeah. twitch muscles and all that kind of stuff. But um, do you feel like you've lost a step or did you, or did you get right back in, you know, athletes talk about their timing and finding their timing and their rhythm and that sort of thing. Uh, how do you feel on that score? Was it uh, just like, well, now I'm mixing metaphors, shameless. It was just like getting back on that horse. <laughs> there you go. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, you mentioned timing. Like that, to me, that was the hardest part. Um, is that you know, by the time we the, everything closed down, I felt like I was at the point where you know, unlike my earliest years teaching, where I just you're kind of struggling to figure out, you know, how do you use the time? How do you fill the time? How do you make the most out of the time? I felt like I had that so well down by by the time we finished, or by the time, by the, time the campus closed, where you know, I had a sense of what I wanted to get across had a sense of the time and then could let things kind of go organically. And if I didn't get through all the stuff I, I wanted, that was fine. And if we went in directions other than what I'd planned, that was fine. And I always felt like I was, I had, I felt like I had gotten good at just getting to a point where the class had to end and then being comfortable enough to just move on to whatever was next without being too precious about, you know, content and, and, and material. And like, you know, if I didn't get through the French revolution, it didn't, kill me or anything like that. It didn't, didn't bother me too much or whatever, whatever the event was. Um, the timing though was, was, I was really struggling with timing. Partly I'll, I'm going to blame this podcast actually, because, um, you know, you, you talked about the podcast kind of filling some of the, the role that we, we lost from, from being in the classroom, but the stuff we talked about and the way we kind of, you know, built up our ideas about history through the course of these you now 50, this is a 56 episode. Um, you know, it just has me thinking about history differently. And and one of the real, you know, um, things I encountered prior to going back to the classroom is I had all this new stuff I wanted to talk about, but online courses aren't always the best for bringing in new things, if that makes sense. It's hard to kind of integrate new stuff into a, into an online class when you have stuff pre-recorded and things like that, because you can't just, you know, add two minutes of stuff somewhere in the middle of, of a record, you know, for, for a class. And so, as soon as I got in the back of the classroom, I was like throwing in all this, you know, these ideas and approaches and the kind of meta historical stuff we've done a lot of, um, which was super fun. And I think students got got something out of that and, you know, uh, got to kind of see the way that history is as a field actually actually works. Now we think about this stuff, but it did mean that my timing was 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 off and I was not getting through what I wanted to get through. Um, and I was still letting the class, you know, kind of go in the direction it, it wanted to. But I was feeling like I would get to the end. And I wasn't quite as satisfied as as I used to be. And that, you know, again, that's like a muscle that you have to you have to exercise and um, it'll come back. But to me, that was the, the main thing is just um, figuring out how to get through what I wanted to get through. Not in the terms, not in terms of just pure content, but like, you know, by the end of the class, do they have the ideas that that um, I wanted them to get? Because we've talked about this before that we got to be more than just, you know, uh, content producers in the classroom uh we gotta you know history should be about the ideas first and foremost and kind of the the content second that's increasingly how i feel and um to me that was it was a little harder to do that now than it had been in the past for for a number of reasons but including because i just think my thoughts about history are more fully fleshed out now than ever before because of because of talking to you on this podcast to be to be very very clear yeah yeah. Well, uh, that's interesting. I mean, as far as your students were concerned, you know, staying with the the athlete uh, analogy or maybe the baseball analogy, you know, your students occasionally will throw you the unexpected uh, curveball, you know, yeah. uh, or sinker or something. And uh, and you find yourself swinging at it, but your timing's off a little bit. Um, did you did you feel that that rapport, that back and forth was was feeling natural. I mean, you had to wear a mask among other things. Yes. I imagine your students did too. Uh, did, did that interrupt 
you know, some of the natural back and forth flow. I wouldn't say, you know, again, I don't want to be like the, the, the mass person. I can't breathe in this mass. This is a, this is, you know, a violation of my rights or anything like that. It was weird at first, um, figuring out, you know, you, you get to campus and they've got all these different masks you can use all the N95s or K90, what, you know, all the different versions. And I got to the classroom with my, you know, super safe mask. And as soon as I start talking, like, there's no way I'm going to be able to get through this with this thing on. And so I kind of downgraded to the, just the typical surgical mask. Um, and then for the first, I don't know, when did the mask mandate come to come to an end is in the past, I want to say month, month and a half or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so most, you know, students were really good about masking early on. Um, it wasn't too big of a problem. It took some adjustment just talking with it with a mask on. Um, but then as the semester went on, the mask mandate came to an end. Students kind of slowly, you know, on their own decided whether they were going to keep them on or not. And so, you know, two, three, four students in a class might have their mask on at any given moment. The rest kind of kept them on even after the mandate came to an end and then decided at some point it was okay to remove them. And then I, you know, my my feeling was that I was going to keep wearing the mask because on the one hand, it's just safer. On the other hand, I wanted to give students who felt uncomfortable taking the mask off at least, you know, the sense, well, it's okay because the teacher still has his mask on, the instructor still has his mask on. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, late in the semester, this is maybe in the last the last month or something like that, um, for two consecutive classes, I got to the classroom, you know, got my stuff set up. And as soon as I started talking, I went to adjust my mask and it broke. And it happened twice. And so mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm not wearing a mask for this class. Um, and uh, it actually did feel good not to have a mask on, I'll be clear. Um, but, uh, you know, in the end, it wasn't like a huge deal one way or another. The, the worry, I think, was that students were going to make a big deal about having to wear a mask. There was going to be the kind of political stuff. And it just never happened, at least um, at least for me. So to me, that was the bigger worry than having to wear the mask is just like the politics of masking was going to interfere with the dynamics of the classroom. But it, it didn't happen. I, I, as I was saying earlier, the rapport just developed really cleanly and organically partially because i think the classroom just felt much more informal than than it ever had before because it was like we're all experiencing this thing together right this coming back to to kind of normal normal something like normalcy um and it led to you know kind of a fun dynamic i would say throughout the semester um and uh, like i had one student at the end of, of the last day of class he just comes up to me and goes, can I give you a hug? <laughs> I, I, I guess you can give me a hug. Um, but, you know, I think for him, it was just like this experience that he hadn't had for a while. And so he wanted to, uh, uh, I guess, thank me through through that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, it was it was a it was a great experience. We'll see, you know, once it becomes more normal, then like the excitement of it goes away and you're just, it, it, you know, you know that being in front of the class however many days a week, it can be a grind as much as it's rewarding, as much as it can be, you know, invigorating, as I said, um, it can start feeling like a grind, particularly if you've got a big class and, you know, some people are engaged and some people are and all that kind of normal stuff. But I didn't get any of that this semester. So that was, again, just such a, just a fun experience for me to be, be doing that again. Well, I'm glad we had an opportunity to hear from you on that, you know, um, that that anecdote at the end there about the you know the student wanting the hug I, I yeah you know I mean you, you, normally you might think you know under what passed for normal you know in the in the yeah. the 
the bygone times, you know, you you, yeah. you would probably maybe discourage that kind of thing or <laughs> yes, you know, depending, I guess, on your teaching personality. I mean, goodness knows we have colleagues in other departments and such. That's probably you know more more normal. Who are much but, friendlier than us? Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, more tactile, let's say. Uh, yes. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, in this context, it's actually pretty poignant, you know, because yeah. uh, we have been uh, socially isolated, uh, yeah. not just as, as you know, faculty, but, uh, you know, s our students as well. And uh, I found myself, you know, yesterday in the uh, optical department, you know, at, at, at Kaiser, you know, needing a new pair of uh, of glasses, talking to the the tech person you know and and through through mass naturally but you know we were just mm -hmm. some chit chat and at one point i was smiling and i and i realized i don't think she can tell i'm smiling you know <laughs> no. it's sort of uh, i guess our colleagues in communication you know interpersonal communication could put a name on all this but it, it it's interesting how much of our teaching normally might be conveyed through that sort of expressiveness that, you know, something like a mask uh, may uh, may mute, you know, and, yeah. and make it harder. But uh, clearly you found other ways because, you know, your students uh, were engaged and and even feeling, you know, uh, you know, feeling uh, that the that the experience maybe was was in itself memorable, which it is, let's face it, coming back after the apocalypse, you know, uh, on future yeah. episodes, we can kind of carry this conversation forward because, you know, my thought is, what have we learned? You know, I hope we've learned, you know, a lot, right? And that we don't just do the, you know, tally-ho for the status quo and, you know, return to the the normal programming, uh, as it were, which I, unfortunately, I see a little bit too much of, you know, because yes. I think we've learned a lot about, you know, the, 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 the connection we have with our students and, and the types of connections and, and why, as you say, maybe, you know, getting through a content stuffed curriculum may not be uh, ultimately our, our greatest student learning outcome or something, you know, but, uh, yeah. you know, going, going, taking the narrative, you know, to the meta historical, the way we have on the podcast, so that we're not just talking about content. We're not just talking about this happened, then this happened, then this happened. You know, not that we ever were. I'm exaggerating a bit, but I, I understand what you're saying there, that, that that sort of curricular rush to the end, you know, uh, as opposed to taking time to have those conversations in class, Yeah. you know, and, and not worrying strictly about, well, how are we going to assess this? You know, is there a quiz I can put yeah. on the end of this? Um, yep. and I know, you know, we had a survey that came around, you know, from, I don't know, was it the union or the district, uh, you know, and they were asking I think questions. It was union. Yeah, I think it was union. Yeah. About union, right? The class size yeah. survey. Yeah. Because there's yep. been a movement underfoot. There's, a, there's no <laughs> real rhyme or reason to how big classes are. Uh, basically they, they fill up our classrooms with as many chairs as they can and call that maximum enrollment or something. Uh, and then pretend cap. it's because that's what we that's what we can handle as opposed to like, like yeah. this is what's appropriate for history class. But you're like, right. no, actually, that's just you can get 45 chairs in the class. That's why there's 45. Right. And if they'd built the rooms a little bit bigger, it'd be 55, you know, yep. or a little bit smaller, it'd be 35. But, you know, the one question they ask is, well, what do you think class size should be? And you and I were talking about this. And it's like, oh, 13. Yeah, this cracks me up. I mean, I picked 13 yeah. because of your number, you know, and you said how, uh, how nice it was and how effective it was. And even when 13 turned to 10 or eight or something, you know, so much the better because you preserve that connection. And let's face it, Josh, I mean, we've only known this forever, 
you know? Yeah. So uh, to what extent will the system bend, you know, or evolve to allow for these insights? You know, uh, I guess, I guess time will tell, but unfortunately, you know, that, that part of me, you know, that actually studies history says, oh, you know, they'll, they'll go back, what, to the, the bottom line pretty quickly, which is, yes, you know, stack them, uh, the old, the old saying is stack them deep, teach them cheap, right? Yep. Well, let me just, one last thing, we can move on to our, our next segment, but, um, you know, that the, the idea, like one of the things we learned through the pandemic is, you know, the things that really matter and the things that we just pretended mattered and, and really didn't. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that was certainly like consciously, but also probably unconsciously, you know, in my mind through this semester. And I'm like, you know, this, the, the college has their ideas of, they, they call it student success. And like, that's defined numerically and, and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, I don't really care about their version of success. And like, so I get to the, the end of my world history class, which was to me like the, one of the most fun I've had in the classroom. Um, well, certainly in two years, but um, in, a, in a long, long time, even, be, even beyond that, mm-hmm. I'm thinking this is a successful class. Cause you know, I got, everybody was, was willing to, to speak and they people making jokes and people were saying poignant things and making good observations. And it was like, all right, if, if this is not student success, then nothing is. And then I, I realized I hadn't really looked at my grade book in a while. And I, I went to my grade book, I'm like, <laughs> oh, of the 13 people, basically only five people turned anything <laughs> this semester. And so that, it wasn't the last day, it was the second to last day of class. Uh, so that, that next day I'm like, yeah, I love you guys. This has been so fun, but can you please turn some stuff in over the next week? Nice. Nice. Um, <laughs> because wow, this is successful in, in many ways. I mean, ultimately, you do want to get credits for the class. You know, I'm not right. going to go by the the college's version of success, but but actually getting credits for being here is 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 success enough that uh, so just get stuff in. And uh, well, I don't know if they're going to, but, <laughs> but it was just a funny reminder that oh yeah, just pretending like you can redefine success. Um, you can go a certain distance that way, but ultimately. There is a set of institutions and, and rules about what actual success is uh, mm-hmm. in terms of credit and transfer and all that kind of stuff that uh, you got to meet some basic, basic, uh, um, you know, get a, get a C at least to get through here. Um, yeah, I mean, but those are the conversations, you know, we, we need to have based on the experience yes. of the past two years and, and the totality of our teaching Careers. You know, it, it's often decided, though, outside the frame of our own conversations, isn't it? I mean, these things tend to come down the pipe, as they say, uh, sort of preformed. You know, here's here's what assessment is. Here's what uh, you know standards there are, et cetera. And, 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 you know, I mean, to some extent, we find these acceptable. But we've also learned that they represent systemic interests and quantifying performance, you know, academic human performance, that may or may not actually be a particularly valid measure uh, of what what the learning experience was all about. And when I see like yeah. what you're describing, which doesn't necessarily lend itself, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you told them, hey, at least get me a what a reflective essay or something. Yes. You know? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that uh, that 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 is a certain kind of assessment. But 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 that kind of assessment wouldn't necessarily measure then the totality of the learning experience, because I'm guessing every single one of those students will long remember the the experience of being there, how that felt, uh, the general scope of things you guys talked about, if not the the particulars, you know, and we'll come away with a greater sense of what it means to think 
about history and hey man you know at the end of the day that's all i really want absolutely yeah and you know it's funny because when you talk about that the poll they they said the union poll it's it's a what i what was real to me is that there still is some institutionalization going on in my head because my answer was like I don't know, 35 seems like a practical response to this oh question. God. And then when we talked about it, you're like, yeah, I said 13. I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess I could have just said 13. This was not. Right? So, uh, yeah, I got yeah. some work to do still to break break free of these these things. I know. Don't we all? It's hard to undo these things as we're going to talk today. It really is. Uh, certain things we learn are hard to unlearn, but, but uh, <laughs> that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. Really hard to unlearn them. Um, yeah, so as we go into the next segment here, thank you for that uh, little revealing look. Uh, as I say, it'll be part of an ongoing conversation, I'm sure, here on History Against the Grain. We're actually committed now, aren't we, uh, to uh, showing up at the American Historical Association uh, annual conference next January uh, to talk about, uh, of all things, talk about what uh, podcasting and teaching do you think we we know enough about those subjects <laughs> i think so yeah but get your tickets they're going fast i hear um to our panel i think that's how the ha works right yeah pretty yeah, much i think they, they individual, out individual panels yeah it's in philadelphia right so they had the old uh, philadelphia spectrum where the 76ers played and they put us in center court and, yeah i think that's how it works. in the round <laughs> podcasting yeah, yeah. is what we're gonna do free free cheese um, steaks for everyone who comes so uh, but yeah, this will be uh, this figures then to be part of an ongoing conversation, something we're obviously invested in in a lot of ways. Um, we'll take into this next uh, segment, segment two, to talk about uh, how some uh, less sanguine uh, current events um, uh, have once again sort of uh, intruded upon uh, the uh, historical uh, tableau in our country. That is, as as history uh, and the present. Uh, continue their uneasy dialogue. So, uh, yeah, let's go into to segment two. So give us the fun uh, talking about stuff we don't have to get that much chance to talk about, uh, partly because we haven't really, teaching has not necessarily been form on our, foremost in our minds in the past two years, but um, it's time to turn to a more serious subject as we reflect upon this most recent racially motivated um, mass violence in the United States um, in, in Buffalo. And what you're going to do is is talk about this certainly as a, as a current event, but of course, because it's history against the grain, you want to tie it into the way we've thought about and produced and consumed history in the past. And to, to you know, once again, make this case that um, that the history we're told, uh, you know, often makes us sicker. And so this kind of stuff is going to keep happening as long as we accept the history that um, is produced for for the American public. Yeah. You know, I, I realized in reading about um, the events in Buffalo, the, the the tragic and destructive and violent events in in Buffalo. That even though since I you know gee Josh, but since I was a little kid, I've been an inveterate reader of news and you know newspapers mm -hmm. and uh, everything from you know <laughs> politics to feature stories to sports, you name it. Um, 
and so though what I've learned in the last several years is I have to pick my spots because yep. gee, I don't I, the trauma that plays out in mass shootings, which is, you know, deep, um, you know, deep and, and, and lasting for those obviously who are victims of it, uh, you know, offers its own kind of trauma to, to those who simply involve themselves as knowers of it, you know, as readers uh, of it. And so I, I have to, because there's so much trauma, you know, I've been, I've been reading a book uh, by Elsa Gabbert called the unreliability of memory. And, you know, one of the things she talks about is how we become kind of conditioned to waiting for the next trauma, you know, to, to come around. And, and, and we don't always assume that it affects us personally, unless we happen to be involved, you know, in near proximity to the wildfire, you know, or the drought or the mass shooting. Uh, mm -hmm. There was a mass shooting in San Jose where I live now in the first month that I lived here within about a mile of where I lived. And, and that felt closer to home, but I would suggest as Alice Gabbard does, it doesn't have to be physically close to you. Uh, that if you are, uh, what if you are conditioned by it enough, just by reading about it, just by exposing yourself to the rawness, you know, of it, that it leaves its own kind of, um, you know, traumatic imprinting or, or, or something, you know? And so, gee, I don't know. I mean, I, I, so I've, I've been careful, let's say that, you know, in, in, yes. in choosing how much, I mean, you know, clearly, I can't, it's not a matter of looking away or immersing yeah. yourself. There's, there's somewhere in there that you find you can have a capacity for, but it's just so, so raw and, and so difficult. And then on so many other levels, so infuriating, you know, yes. when we start hearing, you know, the commentary come in and then particularly the political commentary of it. But here's, here's my point. I mean, I, I'm, this is my own sort of confession, podcast confession, I guess, you know, um, that, uh, you know, when I was reading something, I, I didn't go online, for example, to read the diatribe that the killer, and I'm not going to use the killer's name, this 18 year old person, right? This, this white male who uh, took the lives of 10 people in, in Buffalo and injured others. And, th and that's at the current count. I'm, you know, um, that, uh, this person had posted some kind of, um, you know, diatribe online, uh, was, was live streaming, the shooting, you know, and so somewhere in the, in the, you know, just the, the awfulness of all that, I saw a comment attributed to him, uh, I guess from what he had written, something about he wanted to prevent white people from losing their rightful control of the country. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it was that particular uh, bit of text that suddenly, you know, gave me a, a kind of different frame of mind on this, where I could think about it, not just as, you know, a, a kind of appalled, you know, citizen, you know, and, and, you know, consumer of the news or something, but getting us back to what we do, uh, professionally, at least, and that is thinking in historical terms, that is white people losing their rightful control of the country. Suddenly, it was once again, clear to me that so many of these kinds of justifications, you know, for what end up being really fundamentally traumatic things, whether it be what we talked about on the last episode with Putin's war in Ukraine, 
-hmm. and the atrocities that are going on there or the atrocity going on in Buffalo. So often these traumatic things, these acts of violence are predicated on some particular notion of the past that is a kind of historicized rationale for doing what they do. Uh, in Putin's case, we talked about it last time, right? Is sort of you know, the grandiosity of Russian nationalism. You know, yeah. uh, in the case of this this killer in Buffalo, you know, a historical case for the primacy of white nationalism. Mm -hmm. uh, and 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 you know, there, I mean, there's many elements to this. Uh, it's, it's not only white nationalism, because among those that this particular perpetrator cited were some of the mass killer, you know, the, 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 the case in New Zealand, uh, the shooting of the mosques, you know, New Zealand, uh, the Norway incident mm -hmm. from several years ago now, you know, in which several, uh, well, scores of people actually were killed. Yeah. Um, that there's a kind of transnational element to this, you know, and I know at, at, at a point in the broadcast today, you're going to talk a little bit about sort of the, um, you know, what tend to be the darker effects of, of nationalism, um, you know, global, globally, that a lot of this tends to come out of a kind of national context, even when it presumes to reach across national borders, you know, like white hatred or something like that. Actually, the theory that's being cited in the news right now is something called replacement theory, right? Yeah. They've, there's a name for this. Um, you know, this is this idea and it's popular. It's been popular in, in what we'll call white nationalists or white supremacist circles uh, for a few decades. Uh, that This idea that non-white individuals are being brought into the United States and other Western countries to, quote, replace mm -hmm. white voters to achieve a political agenda. In other words, in effect, yeah. flooding the ballot box to create you know, permanent majorities in this country, the, the allegation is pointed at the Democratic Party to create permanent Democratic majorities that can always overrule the interests of white voters, presumably who, that are sequestered in the Republican Party or something? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first the first place, I, I, mean, I don't want to say the first place, but the, the place where that replacement theory kind of came back into the fore for me was um, the Charlotte, Charlottesville, right? Um, that mm -hmm. white nationalist mm -hmm. yeah. march slash riot um, where, you know, they were chanting the Jews will not replace us, which, you know, at the time seemed so anachronistic. It seemed so, so bizarre, seemed so out of place in the 20th century. But um, if anything, that, that view, that, that idea has only grown stronger and it's grown stronger almost specifically, you know, through the usual channels of social media and the internet, but increasingly also through the um, primetime news show of, of Tucker Carlson, who has become mm -hmm. maybe the leading voice of replacement theory, but he's doing so on a major network um, broadcasting mm -hmm. to the largest audience anywhere in news. Um, and this stuff trickles down. Certainly, you know, Fox News appeals mostly to older people. Um, but, you know, him, him spouting those ideas gives them a kind of legitimacy that certainly um, gives younger proponents of these ideas um, maybe a greater sense that this is, there's something, there's something to these, these, these ideas. And it's, you know, I'm going to talk about a speech that, that, uh, that Jawaharlal Nehru gives um, later, but he talked about the poison that's, you know, kind of seeped into the veins of, of, of India. And, you know, that's what I think about when I think about, you know, Carlson and this kind of internet swamp of white nationalist ideas is that, um, 
it's it's a, a poison that um, has never fully been eradicated, never fully been addressed, never fully been confronted. Um, and so it, it was always kind of trickling beneath the surface, even when it became, you know, more illegitimized to, to, to say these things out loud. Um, the ideas were very much out there. We were talking the other day about, you know, under the Reagan administration, nobody was, was nobody, you know, in the halls of power was saying the kind of things that Tucker Carlson was saying. But at the same time, you know, their policies certainly represented their own view of, of replacement theory, right? Anti-immigrant, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, screeds against, you know, welfare queens, all this kind of stuff was was ultimately about, you know, those people trying to take what, what we have, um, trying to take away from us the privileges that we we deserve. And by we, you know, they're speaking to a white and largely white male audience, although more broadly just a white audience. That stuff was there, um, but for a time at least, it wasn't spoken about in the terms that are now, you know, being said on major network news shows today. And that's, um, it's not great <laughs> to go that far. It's it's not great, but it, and it shows, you know, again, that this stuff doesn't come out of nowhere. There's always a history behind the, these ideas. And it, it's also a, a, a nice example of, of not just buying into the idea of progress, that things just get better over time because, you know, this stuff, as long as it's there, as long as it's in the atmosphere somewhere, it always has the potential to bubble back up, to return, uh, to resurge, to come back and become even more powerful in, in, in various uh, iterations, even as um, the most vocal proponents of it, you know, seem to be uh, of the past. Um, here we are again in 2022 and it's still going. Yeah, it's still going. And as you point out, it's just, it's becoming less um, self-conscious, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's becoming, um you know the 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 filtered element you know that i'm going to talk about here today the filtered out the filter has been nearly removed right, right. Um, a woman named kathleen Ballou has written a book about you know this sort of more recent white supremacy movement uh defines it uh, re replacement theory that is uh, the violent defense of whiteness and as you pointed out, I mean, in the 80s, you know, we had Willie Horton, you know, um, yeah. the famous ad, right, by the political strategist Lee Atwater on behalf of George H.W. Bush's presidential campaign, mm -hmm. which depicted a, um, a parolee or a work, a guy who uh, was furloughed on a work furlough program during Michael Dukakis's tenure as governor of Massachusetts, who went on to, uh, you know, commit these these terrible crimes and and but but the thing about the the Willie Horton example wasn't so much the details of the case, uh, or even the details of the work furlough program or its relative success or anything like that. It was simply the villi the visage, excuse me, the visage of Willie yes. Horton, which in a kind of mugshot, you know, photo, uh, this this black man's visage, you know, evoked that that sort of racial panic that feeds a lot of this you know, um, violent defense of, of whiteness, it, it, it almost didn't need a caption, you know, to to work for the, uh, you know, what, what was then the Republican campaign of, um, you know, George H.W. Bush. So, uh, yeah, listen, not only can we find a history to this, but my again, my point, you know, with, with like the shooter in Buffalo and so many uh, is that they themselves draw upon what they consider to be a historical argument for doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. 
So, yes, so yeah. I mean, you think of something like MAGA, you know, make America great. Again. That is that is inherently an appeal to history, isn't it? Because it suggests that there was once a time in the past when America was great and that drawing upon that historical wellspring that somehow, you know, America will be made great again. So it's an inherently historic appeal to history is what I would call it. Would you agree? I mean, yeah, definitely an appeal to history. And, and I'm going to talk about India later, so I don't want to use up all my good stuff right now. But um, there's an author named Aj- Ajaz Am- Ahmad uh, who writes about the rise of the Hindu right. And he talks about uh, the appeal in India uh, to this. He calls it aggressive, non-traditional traditionalism, um, where this stuff is just purely you know, made up. Like there's no tradition in many cases of the specific ideologies that these people are espousing, but it's it's all couched in traditional terms, right? So it gives it this this sense that it's, you know, historically based and it's coming out of, you know, the essence essentially of, of these communities as opposed to like so much in the modern world, it's it's kind of an invention and construct and, you know, built out of different pieces um, and then called essentially traditional. So I, I very much think that that a lot of this white nationalist rhetoric, again, it has it has clear, clear precedence in, in history, but the very specifics of it um, are fairly modern in terms of of their design and their their construction. Um, it, you know, so they're taking kind of older ideas and then adapting them for these contemporary purposes in a way that makes them seem as if this is just the way it always has been and always should be. Yeah, and I I want to make it clear I'm not interested in this episode of of doing somehow a history of of racial replacement theory. I'm right, upset right, right. as much as I I really want to say about it because I I have a bigger point to make or at least to my way of thinking because you know we tend to be shocked by this right we tend to see yeah. oh there's something you know I mean unless you're immersed in those kind of you know online you know chat sites you know where this kind of white supremacist stuff is being thrown around. Um, you know, you, you can't help but be a little shocked. Say, oh, well, you mean there's a theory to this and it's a theory based yeah, on right, history? Right. And, I, and I would suggest that the reason we find ourselves a little bit shocked by that is because we tend not to associate it with the stories we tell ourselves about who we are. Mm-hmm. We make a clean break in our minds that somehow the stories we tell ourselves as a nation are fundamentally different from cleaner, more just more defensible than these kinds of what we consider to be lunatic fringe theories. But my argument today is they're not, um, that they share a common storytelling source, uh, basically. And it's only through the what we've often called the bewildering powers of certain mm-hmm. narratives that we don't see that connection more clearly. In other words, we've been telling ourselves this fundamental story of white nationalism all along. And like you say, the thing that tends to be different about it now is that the filter's simply taken off. You know, there's less... Yeah interest in in what we're going to call designer memory that is creating memories that somehow we can live with by design uh, and make us feel better about who we are more patriotic etc well that kind of designer memory filter just kind of gets ripped off and you you're left with the rudiments you know the kind of um, you know the raw you know uh, kind of edge of it or something, you know, without the bewildering, you know, the window dressing or something like that. Because, you know, look, this guy in Buffalo, uh, this is a story, Uh, this this story of racial separation. This is a story he was told or a story he read at some point. He's only 18, right? Mm -hmm. A story he learned 
a story he absorbed, a story that he identified with, a story that became his story to the point that he did what? He showed up at a supermarket in Buffalo and killed 10 people. Uh, That was a story-driven action is what I'm trying to say. Now, maybe some of our psychology colleagues would want to root it somewhere else. They would want to say, well, it's it's a pathology of of what, uh, you know, a narcissistic mind or something. And I, you know, I mean, that's probably true as well. Some a sociologist might want to say, well, it has more to do with what the, um, you know, the hardening of, of racial boundaries and the demonizing and, you know, and, and you know, of, of lower income people. And, and, you know, that's, that's undoubtedly true. And we could go through a checklist of the social sciences, yeah. you know, uh, to find, reasons for why someone might do something like this. But, you know, what I'm going to say is that it's a story-driven action that when we tell Mm -hmm. ourselves, because, you know, as the storytelling animal, right, as we tell ourselves over time a certain kind of story, that story can diffuse into all kinds. I mean, you know, it's as, as, as one of my favorite story Tellers said, you know, a story is a dangerous thing. Once you let it loose out in the world, you you don't have any control over it, you know, and you don't know ultimately what it's going to do. And so when you have the Tucker Carlson's of the world and, and in Congress, people like Elise Stefanik, who's a third ranking Republican member who has also been peddling racial um, replacement theory that, you you know, you unleash the, uh, you know, the, the demonic elements of those stories. And and then you know, what? Then they have to try to separate themselves from. It. They say, "Well, I didn't encourage anybody. I I didn't advocate anybody to do that." But that's so disingenuous, wouldn't you agree? Because right. it's the story that makes us sick, and it's the repetition yeah. of that story, the celebration of that story. And what I want to suggest today, in my part for the episode, is that is a story rooted in the primary story we tell ourselves, not in the lunatic fringe. But that mm-hmm. racial replacement ultimately is simply a kind of a, a subchapter, if you will, of the larger, or, you know, main stage story, what I call the standard version history of the United States. And it's rooted in a particular narrative of who we are and who we belong or who belongs here. Right. And I would say that yeah. that's what the SVH, the standard version history of the United States, has always done. It has always been predicated upon some definition, some nominal notion of who we are and where we uh, uh, where we came from and who belongs here. And that that is fundamentally predicated. That story, that narrative is fundamentally predicated on what we call white nationalism. And I, you know, I don't I don't know, you know, how seriously racial separate. I don't how seriously on its face. We should take it as a valid understanding of the past. I tend to think it's, you know, bollocks, right? You know, on its own terms, right. obviously. But uh, whether or not we give it legitimacy as a credible way of looking at history, we have to acknowledge its storytelling power for those like the Buffalo uh, shooter, you know, to actually at, at the tender age of 18 to prepare and carry out, you know, a basic uh, one man execution of, of, of 10 lives, you know? So mm-hmm. sure. Um, let's, let's consign it to the margins, but we do so at our peril, you know, that, that if we don't have the deeper understanding 
of where that narrative is rooted fundamentally in our nation, then what possible hope could we have of overcoming it as long as we continue right. to tell the story the same way, right? Yep. Um, this has got me Go thinking about part of part of the issue is that, you know, the standard version history, you're, you're talking about that, that kind of national story and that, you know, that national story exists, obviously, not just the United States, but everybody's got their own ver version of that. The tendency mm -hmm. is the national story tends to clean up the history, right? It, it takes out the dirty parts. Mm -hmm. It takes out the violence. It takes out the exploitation and then, you know, creates a story that tends to be more triumphal. Um, mm -hmm. But in the end, the violence did happen, right? And so when the standard version history cleans it up, even though it happens, what, what happens to people, you know, like conservatives of this of this ilk is that they look at the violence, which is supposed to be, you know, ultra in, in something we, we don't talk about and something we don't uh, address. And they say, well, yes, the violence happened, but not only did it happen, it was for a purpose. It, it, it existed as part of a necessity, right? To create this this world, to create this land, to create this nation based around the principles that we believe in, which is essentially white nationalism. So in, in many ways, by covering up, I, I, there's just this disconnect, right? It reminds me actually of, of kind of British imperial history, where every time there's a massacre, you know, liberals in the, in the House of Commons are like, well, you know, this sucks and we hate this, but this is not who we are. As we've heard that phrase before. And conservatives are like, no, it, it happened. And this is actually what we should be doing. This is necessary to hold back the hordes and, you know, maintain order and all this kind of stuff. There's, it, the disconnect is so great. You almost can't have conversations across it because one's trying to deny, you know, the centrality of violence and the other's essentially adopting that violence and adopting that viewpoint as central to their entire political ideology and you know again like there was a time in which we just didn't people didn't talk about these things as directly and openly as as they are now but there was always that sense built into i think the way history was told that yeah some bad things happened but it was all for the purpose of some greater end so it's okay in the end even if there was some dirtiness in the past Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we've dedicated now over 50, you know, what, 56 episodes, you know, yeah. to try, you know, trying to, ex you know, excavate that and, and, you know, what you're right. calling that disconnect, you know, for me resides in, in the storytelling itself, because, you know, the expression, or, or I should say the, uh, the frustration that you're expressing, you know, is is due to what seems to be a fundamentally irrational, you know, disconnect. You know, how how can, how can you look at this event of violence and draw this conclusion? How yes. can you draw any other conclusion? You know, than right. that it is uh, somehow rooted and and trafficked in the telling of this. And and yet, that's the bewildering property of stories. Stories can make you feel, make you identify make you believe, make you act in ways that, strictly speaking, don't make sense on, on you know, sort of rational grounds. The, the irrational becomes the rational. And well, well, look, it occurs to me that the reason we are shocked by all this, Josh, you know, when we see about racial replacement emerging from what seemed to be the lunatic fringe or something, you know, as a justification for mass murder, I mean, this guy is very deliberate about it. He published this online. He has something to say, right? Mm -hmm. You know, as if it were a rational discourse. Is that in this country, you know, we, we've grown accustomed to the idea that racially charged mass murder 
was a special pathology, you know, only of contemporary America and the lunatic fringe, uh, or maybe what radical Islam or something like that, you mm -hmm. know, uh, and that it was all just symptomatic of our violent culture in a country awash in guns. And look, I'm not, I'm not going to deny that. I think that's all. <laughs> that sounds good too. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. But, you know, look, if we think about it in a larger historical record, you know, uh, racialized violence, look, how about the destruction of native peoples in North America, you mm. know, or or white on black violence, such as lynching throughout the age of Jim Crow, not to mention wholesale enslavement. You know, I got to use Equiano's de definition of slavery here as an act of war to enslave mm. somebody is an inherently violent thing to do. But what? There's the disconnect, because we concluded that that was a thing of the past in American right. history that we had moved beyond. We knew it was there, but we felt separated from it. And, you know, it's here I want to emphasize, Josh, that, you know, this is mostly a matter of, for me at least, of storytelling conceit and the power of a narrative to bewilder, particularly right. as we create these kinds of binaries in our minds and in our stories now versus them us versus them, you know, mm -hmm. the tendency uh, is to separate ourselves from the past, you know, the tendency, and then to romanticize that yeah. past, like what? Not genocide, uh, but westward expansion. You know, mm -hmm. not, not lynching, but gone with the wind. Uh, those yeah. are stories we tell ourselves. Every U.S. history textbook has some version of those stories of that now versus then, and us versus them. But here I want to quote Faulkner again. You know, William Faulkner wrote in, in Requiem for a Nun, the past is never dead. It's not even past. You know, so but good. those stories create that disconnect. And I guess what I want to say today is we need to see the simultaneity of now and then and us and them. Uh, and the ways, particular ways that are, uh, we're calling here today designer memories, effectively bewilder and partition the past and its people as if to immunize us from those crimes. And furthermore, to ro even romanticize them in the national narrative as elements of, of what? Of progress? Because even something like slavery, as we've often pointed out, ultimately gets, you know, the Volta moment. Right. You know, mm -hmm. in every sonnet, there's a Volta moment where the whole meaning of the poem suddenly goes in a different direction. Yeah. And so it goes from slavery to what? To abolition of slavery. I would to say that the phrase, a, yeah. A progressive chapter in America. We freed the slaves. Yeah. We freed the slaves so that, you know, this thing was, it happened, not only did it happen in the past, but we triumphed over it. And now we're better because we triumphed over it with the we, you know, never yeah. kind of quite explained, but you know, wink, wink, you know who we mean by yeah, we. Uh, exactly. Yeah. They enslaved. We overcame yes, yes. slavery. Slavery <laughs> yeah, was perfect. then. Freedom is now. You know, all these simple mm -hmm. binary. Well, this was really brought home to me, Josh, this last weekend, uh, because we attended a, a talk here in San Jose at the California Theater, uh, a special invited uh, author uh, as guest by the name of Robin Wall Kimmerer, uh, was in town um, to talk about uh, conservation and, and traditional uh, native uh, lands and the, and the preserving of native lands and, and ecosystems. Robin uh, Wall Kimmer is a, a, a distinguished uh, professor of botany 
uh, at SUNY, uh, State University of New York, and wrote a book about, oh, I guess it's been about a decade ago, called Braiding uh, Sweetgrass. Uh, mm-hmm. Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants. Uh, and so we went to hear uh, her speak. But as part of the uh, presentation, she was here, um, it, it was jointly sponsored by the uh, Muwekma Ohlone tribe, which is the native tribal council uh, uh, in the Bay Area, here in the San Francisco uh, Bay Area. And so members of the Muwekma Ohlone uh, people, uh, uh, that is tribal people, were here uh, as part of the presentation. And so, you know, listen, we've gotten used to the native land statements at American River College, you know, where mm-hmm. when we begin various convocations and meetings and such, a reading of native land statements, which should become part of a, a kind of new protocol to remind uh, Americans that, you know, there is an ancestral history to this land, a native ancestral history, et cetera. And, you know, we've seen how at times those have become almost rather performative. You know, like if you just read the script, then you can go on and do whatever you're going to do anyway or something. But, you know, seeing these folks here that were part of the Muwekma Ohlone, I mean, these are people whose ancestral tradition now goes back, say, 10,000 years in what we call the Bay Area, you know, um, and in North America. Uh, And so these are the, the native people, the first peoples present when the Spanish uh, you know, empire arrived and the colonizers arrived, uh, and who, in effect, um, were marched right up to the edge of extinction. Let me let me read to you part from the the Muwekma Ohlone tribal website, and I'll put it in our our show notes later online. Uh, the the Ohlone once proliferated throughout the Bay Area, comprised of all the known now are comprised of all the known surviving American Indian lineages that were Aboriginal of the San Francisco Bay region, who trace their ancestry through the Spanish missions of Mission Dolores, Mission Santa Clara, and Mission San Jose. That is part of the colonizing uh, effort of the Spanish empire in what we now know as California. So these, these are the folks who through those Spanish mission records have been able to kind of reconstruct piecemeal something like a tribal history. Um, to the point where now 600, 600 members are officially registered members of the Muwekma Ohlone. Now think about that, Josh, 600. That's about the size of what, a elementary school population or something? Like maybe a case. size of my six. high school, yeah. You know, I mean, 600, you know, after 10,000 years of North American history, 2,000 years of Pacific region history to be reduced by the 1920s, basically, to what, uh, was even declared at one point extinction. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Ohlone peoples have now reconstructed the surviving, you know, peoples have reconstructed something of their their connection and, and, and even their tribal identity, resurrecting the language and various other, you know, sort of cultural, um, you know, markings of, of their history and who they are as a people. But you think about that for a second, the idea of extinction. You know, what was once called mm-hmm. the vanishing Indian or the vanishing native, you know, in the age of, of Anglo-Westward expansion. It's that idea of extinction. I couldn't help but be struck by the irony, you know, if you get these like this killer in Buffalo who claims that white people are on the verge of extinction. Now, mm-hmm. now we, we know what extinction looks like. 
it's right. it's it's the 600 people that have managed right to save something of their their ancestral selves and heritage and and, and history um that's what extinction looks like and that was the extinction that was carried out in california and across north america by what we usually refer to as what colonization and the, and the westward expansion, right? In other words, we give it that bewildering effect. We don't we don't talk about genocide. We talk about what westward pioneers. You know, we or talk settlement. About, it's like what's more passive than the idea of just settlement, yeah, right? Settlement of farmers and agriculture and. Listen, my own family was in San Jose, you know, by the 1800s, you know. So, mm -hmm. I mean, there's a, there's a settler statue right down as you come into San Jose, into the, the downtown of San Jose, of two, you know, two settler figures on horseback, you know, carrying a flag, you know, ready to plant the, you know, the uh, the banner of, of Anglo-America. And uh, so, okay, so it was an incredibly moving thing to see these folks. Many of them have Hispanic surnames because their ancestors yeah. were brought into the Spanish missions. When you grow up in California, I don't know if you guys did this. I bet you did. At some point in elementary school, did you do the mission project? Or yeah. you have my kids have, all my kids have done them too. Yeah, they're still they're doing it. Too. Fourth, yeah. fourth grade, Sometimes. yeah. Sometimes if you live in the area or in here, you can maybe go take a field trip to the mission. And it's mm -hmm. kind of presented almost again as part of a progressive story of what of you know of civilization, you know. And then yeah. these days, it's more likely to have some you know mention perhaps made of you know the various depredations committed by the Spanish. But it, you know, it's better today than it used to be. But it's still not it's still not great. I will say. Exactly. Exactly. So okay. So this is the repeopling of a of the Western Hemisphere. I mean, we can talk about that. And when we do world history, do we not talk about the repeopling of the Western Hemisphere, which means that almost an entirety of a native ancestral or indigenous population is driven to the point of near extinction? Uh, and it's important to say near extinction because lest we overlook the fact that the living members of those traditions are still here. So we don't consign it entirely in that binary to them and then they are us and here now right uh, yeah. but you know an entire repeopling of a western hemisphere in other words that was the replacement you know a population uh in history it's it's not white yeah. folks worrying about getting out voted in the next election <laughs> it was the literal near extinction brought by western imperialism by european imperialism to the hemisphere well, just to use another, you know, kind of the the the, the passive voice of this is that you you'll often see reference in textbooks to just uh, population recovery, right? The populations began to recover, and you're like, mm -hmm. okay, well, what does that mean? It means all kinds of new people being coming from elsewhere, and then you know, expanding population at, again at the expense of indigenous lands and indigenous territory, um, even in their kind of weakened, um, you know, population cases are still being pressured by. This population recovery, which is again just seen as oh, populations drop now they're growing, but that's just another, um, you, you know, it's another aspect of the tragedy as opposed to something triumphal. Yeah, and what's so maddening is when you you see that false equivalent equivalency presented, you know, with with someone like the the current racial replace replacement yeah. theory, you know, of white supremacists with the actual genocidal near extinction of native peoples, as if one right. is just like the other and that even worse, one is somehow justified, you know, um, 
So histories that bewilder, you know, and 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 teach us. I mean, in Texas, the the Board of Education of Texas mandates that the story of the Alamo, the famous "Remember the Alamo," be taught mm-hmm. in that triumphal Anglo-centered tradition of the last stand to protect liberties, the sort of thing that John Wayne used in the Cold War, you know, as a sort of movie form of history to, to, you know, to, to crow about America as the defender of the free world during the, the Cold War. That is, our roots are in the Alamo, right, as a freedom yeah. story. But as every serious scholar of Texas history has known, has known for a long time, that that whole conflict at the Alamo was brought on, among other things, uh, by the insistence of the Anglo-Texans uh, to preserve slavery, for example. Mm-hmm. But, you know, given the, the state of things now, you know, criti- the, the, the toxin of critical race theory and that sort of thing, you know, it's, it's literally, you know, a disciplinary violation for a teacher to, to, to tell the fuller scope of that story outside the triumphal white nationalist narrative of it. Um, all right. So uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer, the botanist, you know, talks about restoration. You know, the restoration of native land, she says, we can't destroy the land and not destroy ourselves. We can't have sick land and have healthy people. Um, the restoration of, of native peoples and their identities, even their native languages. You know, we walked to the California theater the other night, starting with the word California and very virtually every street we, we crossed here in San Jose, which all tend to be Spanish or Hispanic mm-hmm. street names, right? Santa Clara. Uh, being, you know, the, the main avenue, but many, many others, St. James, they're all Catholic, basically Catholic saint names for streets. Mm-hmm. And one of the points that Robin Wall Kimmer made was, you know, let's bring back the language because part of ex- extinction, part of genocide is not only the physical, um, you know, killing of people, but also their culture, their history, their tradition, their language. Uh, so she talks about restoration. You know, if we're going to be history, we have to tell stories that restore us. Her word, a play on a word she came up with was restoration. That is restoration mm-hmm. as restoration. That is finding a healthier identity and existence and therefore motivation for our behavior in the healthier restorative stories that we can tell ourselves. And this is profoundly threatening, you know, to the Tucker Carlson, Elise Stefanik, critical race theory, um, you know, scaremongering crowd, not to mention the white supremacist killers like the guy in Buffalo. It's profoundly threatening because when you when you broaden the scope of that story and you make restoration of humanity the basis for the story, uh, they they feel that what? That it's an attack on the narrative of white nationalism that privileges what they consider to be their identified place at the center of the story, I guess, right? Well, I mean, absolutely, because it's the national story is an exceptional story, right? That's that's the whole thing is that there's, there's pride in the story because we are defined by um, progress and innovation and, and all this stuff. And if you start throwing in the massacres and the genocide and the, um, you know, all the other kind of dirty parts of the history, then that exceptionalism goes away and you just have another situation in history full of these kind of stories of exploitation and power and, and greed and, and expansion. And um, yeah, it fundamentally undermines their version of, of the text, which is supposed to be one that 
makes us feel good about ourselves and connects us to this glorious history of which of which we're the legacy. And again, you know, when I say we and when I say, you know, they it's there's a wink wink to it. They mean specific people because, um, you know, replacement theory and, you know, the, the idea of killing African-Americans as if they're taking, you know, uh, land from the people who should have it. It's like, well, most African-Americans have legacies in this land that goes longer than most white Americans. Right. Um, but mm-hmm. even within that, within that theory, they just don't count. They're just not part of, of the story at all. Um, they're not part of the exceptionalism. They're not part of the mm-hmm. triumph. They're not part of the glory of, of, of this stuff. And so, um, the less they're talked about, the less, they're, the more they're on the margins of the story, um, the mm-hmm. better for maintaining the, the, the overall scope and, and triumphalism of, of what they're trying to get across. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, look from its inception, that standard ver- version history of the U S I'm talking now th- about the time of the American revolution and the national, which usually called the national birth, right? Mm-hmm. That the standard version history of the U S was framed by, you know, a certain kind of designer memory and by, I'll, I'll explain more specifically what I mean by designer memory, but that is a deliberate conscious effort to structure a story a certain way to benefit and aggrandize certain people, you know, for specific claims. Uh, that was done from the very beginning. In other words, deliberately. Um, yeah. An Anglo-centered narrative uh, a normalizing of imperial conquest as, quote, exploration, uh, pioneer migration, settlement. Uh, the dispossession of native peoples from tribal lands called planting of civilization, uh, uprooting of native ecosystems, which is its own kind of replacement, by the way. And that's what Robin Wall Kimmer is, is, a, you know, is a botanist is talking about, you know, taking out native ecosystems and replacing them with, you know, old world systems, referring to that as what uh, market economy, farming, uh, agriculture, you know, we have other, we have names for these things, right? Uh, that, that take the edge off, you know, that have that bewildering effect and the violence done to the people themselves, you know, that's often put under the rubric of war, a war. Mm-hmm. Now, defense, you know, defense of frontiers, that kind of stuff too. Yeah. Yeah. Something patriotic or something, you know, especially in this age of sort of hyper militarism where every commercial is a chance to applaud our brave fighting men and women. You can't even go to a baseball game, right? Yep. Without getting the kind of military intonation, God bless America and that kind of thing. Uh, and so it's done under the patriotic rubric of war, but what it often meant was the raw killing of civilian peoples by by militias, by military. Uh, you know, I mean, look, we know the names of some of these. The you know the massacre at Wounded Knee, for example. Uh, this was often militarized uh, forces, you know, waging violence, ringing down violence on those who we would consider non-combatants. Uh, often, the elderly women and children deliberately as a strategy to undermine. Native independence. But if we call it war, it seems like something else. If we call it self-defense. And actually, in the settler memory tradition, you know, it's often protecting of the family, the white family, which not surprisingly, you know, was most often represented by a white male with a gun killing non-white native and, and, you know, colored people in that region that was sort of romanticized as the frontier that somehow this was not only, you know, 
sort of tacitly acknowledged, but it was then entirely transformed in its meaning through narrative as as a as something valorous, you know, as something triumphant. Yeah. Uh, something that really explains who we are. Now, to me, it's not all that difficult to make the jump then from that well-known national story, we'll call it the John Wayne history of the West, to the guy in Buffalo, is it? You know, because in effect, isn't the guy in Buffalo making the same justification? He's just doing it in cruder, less filtered ways, you know, to an appeal of history, which somehow puts the primacy of white people at, at the center and puts them in danger you know, endangered by these outsider forces, you know, the, or these internal enemies that then gives him the legitimacy that it gives John Wayne in the Western, which is to do what? Kill them. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you know, you, you talked about Elise uh, Stefanik earlier and, you know, the, you know, her defense, I never you know, told anybody to kill, kill anyone. But when you present these things as all existential, right? Right. Because they, that's the idea, like whether or not you're saying, we need to exterminate the brutes or whatever the, whatever the lines are, if you're suggesting that the very existence of, quote unquote, our people, of, of us, um, is in danger as a result of these whatever outside or internal enemies there are, you don't have to go so far as to say, therefore, it's up to you to defend those, those boundaries, to eliminate those uh, threats, because you've already made the case that unless you do something, then, you know, then our very existence is is at stake and that's you know increasingly how our politics is run is it's a series of existential uh problems that make violence even more um make the potential of violence even greater and you know i think as you're su suggesting like that's has a long long history in the united states I, I as you were talking i was reminded of um when i was in dc in december uh we went to the smithsonian me and my son and there's right. this uh section on american wars and i want to read you the caption here because it's we've talked about this before but the captioning at the smithsonian is a uh, a wonder of a uh, caption by committee but just just listen to the, the passiveness of this wars have been defining episodes in american history for more than 200 years americans have gone to war to win their independence expand their national boundaries define their freedoms and defend their interests around the globe it's like okay those are all words <laughs> there's something there but but there's it's it's ultimately empty phrasing which which makes you know centralizes war in the story of 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 the United States right there's no real implicit criticism in any, any of that um but it's just that this is part of who we are as a society that that makes war um yeah. for good or ill i guess but um but but it's it's right there that violence is is so central um and well, then the and meaning that, and, and yeah that's my point and i mean Congressman Stefanik doesn't have to say we should be killing black people at grocery stores right. uh, because she is simply in hearing a larger narrative of us versus them and racial mm -hmm. replacement in a different guise that is uh, admittedly somewhat more filtered, but which nevertheless connects to the same larger meta narrative of war that you're talking about, the same larger yep. meta, meta narrative of killing. You know, it's almost as if killing really is negotiated, a negotiated part of a narrative where, due to that binary, it's acceptable, you know, when it's us versus them, especially when it's now versus then, that killing was somehow justified. Yeah you know, and it's part of who we are. Um, but that's a conceit. 
You know, that's just a storytelling conceit. I mean, when when Congressman Stefanik votes for various military authorizations, you know, to defect, uh, in effect, you know, defend us versus them. Yeah. Where are those drone strikes happening? Who's being killed? Is it a wedding party, you know, in Syria Mm -hmm. or Afghanistan? You know, the wrong target was picked. Why doesn't the whole program the whole program come to an immediate stop? Because it gets wrapped up in a political narrative and a storytelling narrative of America, what, dispensing justice, us versus them, you know, in a progressive, triumphal storytelling history uh, in which America, the United States, is the good guy. So killing itself is the tragic outcome of it. You know, but it's in storytelling, it's a kind of negotiated presence and it can be negotiated optimally, right, into a kind of benign place in the narrative. That's why we're shocked when we hear this guy in Buffalo take the filter off and say, this is what I'm doing. I'm killing people for this reason, because typically we dress it up in the narrative, don't we? And we say, You know, in the passive voice, well, people were killed. It's like that collateral damage thing. But it was in the name yeah. of progress, you know. Um, if not for that, way. we wouldn't be where we are today, right? That that right. poisonous phrase you, you see in student papers sometimes. Yeah. Exactly. And how could it sound to the Mawekma Ohlone, you know, all 600 mm-hmm. of them now yeah. who are left? Would they see it that way? Would they see it in the kind of uh, aggrandizing terms of the SVH? you know, as progressive and triumphal, you know, I kind of doubt it. Um, yeah. Look, uh, in the case of the U.S. national story, you know, it, what it meant was centering a narrative around the primacy of those we call white people, that is Anglo-Christian colonists and settler folks. Uh, white nationalism here refers specifically to the racial filtering and dividing that occurs at the time of nationhood when the British colonies achieved their sovereign independence from the mother country in a a new and independent sovereign nation state known as the United States of America is declared. And what white nationalism meant, because you don't see the word, you don't see the phrase in the Declaration of Independence, you don't see it in the Constitution, but what you don't see the, the, that is the actual exact language. But what you yeah. see is very much the imprinting of the reality of it, because what it meant, among other things, is that black people or native people were non sovereign residents of the nation, right? They were defined as the legal, political, and social others who stood outside the core membership of the nation. Uh, Nationalism as an ideal and privilege of law and culture was reserved for the sovereign, by the sovereign powers for whom? For white folks. And sometimes the filter was taken off. It was uh, uh, 1793 uh, when you have one of the first sort of immigration laws being passed and citizenship laws that expressly said basically white Christian people, you know, so every once in a while it comes through the filter, you know, you, you were talking about the immigration laws, what are the 1920s, right? 1924. Yeah. The famous immigration act, which is, you know, something that, um, so influential, right? Because on the one hand there, it's literally the basis for Nazi immigration laws, you know, a decade mm-hmm. later, but, it also has creates huge reactions around the globe as as various colonial peoples and and subject peoples and uh, um, you know non great powers um, see in the in the immigration laws that as you were suggesting like this this phrase like the the filters come off right that here's this country that prides itself on you know its liberal uh, its liberality um, and yet 
here you have these laws that are explicitly I mean to to be to be honest you know going back to this this phrase it, this is a s- explicit attempt to to put into policy terms replacement theory right that mm-hmm. white people will not yeah. be replaced and we're going to we're yeah. going to manage that through these very restrictive immigration laws and if you know the japanese um who are in the 1920s very much still trying to fit into a global order in which they're not sure they're becoming more convinced they don't really have a place in that you know the liberal international order they've been told about doesn't actually exist in in reality um the end of world war one kind of you know began to chip away at that but the the immigration law you could make the case 1924 immigration act um is kind of the last gasp of japanese liberal internationalism because at that point they're like well what what is this system we're supposed to be part of if it literally does not allow a single Japanese person to immigrate immigrate to the United States? Um, is there a liberal international order? And if not, then we're not going to mess around with trying to be part of this thing that doesn't doesn't want us anyway. And that's just in Japan. There's you know we see similar reactions in other parts of of the colonized world um, right. as well. But it's it's massively massively important for the way much the le- the, the 20th century plays out. Obviously in the United States, but it has this global, these global consequences as well, um, because again, removing the filter um, in in that case um, revealed a, a lot to a lot of people around the globe. Yeah, uh, gosh, and I tell you, the, so you know, I mean, the question is, we're not just a couple of smart ass historians who think we know every. I mean, what this is hidden in plain sight, is it not? In other words, we're yeah. not discovering some secret history that you have to have a PhD in history to know about. You know, this is all right there in front of us. You know, I mean, look, you know, the tell our students to do this. I mean, you know, Google it. <laughs> you know what I mean? In yes, other words, I know, right. Yeah. Okay. So it's not, uh, you know, it's not as if it's a special knowledge, you know, that belongs only to a a select few or something. It's, um, but it's all bewildered in that shared memory, that designer memory of who we are. You know, we were watching a a thing the other night um, on Netflix and the character in the drama was on Ellis Island at night and was reading, you know, the famous text, uh, Emma Lazarus is the Colossus which was part yeah. of the dedication of the original statue of came to be part of the dedication of the, the statue of Liberty. And it's, I, I have to say, you know, um, I don't want to, you know, get too, you know, modeling or anything, but go back and read it. Go, go read the Colossus. It's extraordinary. She was a Jewish immigrant, uh, the United States who entered a contest, they solicited poems, you know, and they engraved it. Uh, hers won and it was engraved and you can read it there now. But I, I can recall as recently as, you know, the Trump administration, when the, the guy who the, you know, that ghoul, uh, Stephen Miller, that was put in charge of immigration yes. policy, for Trump, yeah. basically disowned the, you know, the give me your tired, the poor, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, which is part of the, the poem, a Lazarus poem, you know, basically disavowed it. You know, talk about taking the mm-hmm. filter off. I thought some certain yeah. sacred cows couldn't be disavowed, but he said, oh, that doesn't, we don't have to take that to mean what we actually are as a nation in terms of yes. our immigrant policy, you know? So what we see, and I love the point you made about the anti, um, or the, the Immigration Act of 1924 yeah. is that, uh, that, you know, look, when, and there's a longer history, you know, than, than that, obviously, but I mean, it comes to the surface every once in a while where the filter does come off and, you know, what it reminds us is when it's when there are attempts, as Robin Wall Kimmer would say, is to provide, you know, restorative justice to these targeted mm-hmm. groups, then that's taken, you know, by the white nationalists to be an attack on them. 
You know, yep. when you remove those prohibitive barriers, when you take away those discriminatory laws, when a black person can sit at the lunch counter of a Woolworths, that becomes then the premise for a white supremacist saying, we're under attack. We're yep. losing our place, our traditional place in American history. And in a way, I guess they're right because it's- well, that's what, yeah. yeah, go yeah. ahead. I mean, that, that's what I've been thinking this whole time, because obviously the things they're saying are, are horrific and, and poisonous and, um, and, and destructive and, and, and all that. But in many ways, they're seeing American history more realistically than kind of the liberal version of the story, right? Because they're seeing that the centrality of violence at the center, but they're seeing the, the impetus for, for genocide and expansion um, that at the heart of it. And they're saying not that this is something we should renounce, but something we need to actually give into, right? We need to be the, the people that we were, you know, ex exhibit the strength we once had. Um, so it, in, in a weird way, like they're more realistic about what American history is than, than you know, the curriculum is and, and kind of the liberal version of the, of the story is because again, like they understand it was always about violence and it needs to still be about violence, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, look, I, you know, I start getting nervous, uh, you know, like in the podcast or in class or in discussion, yeah. when we talk about um, things only in the kind of conceptual frame, you know, it's like the empiricist right. in me says, all right, get back to the ground level. You talk yeah. about designer memory, show me a designer memory, show me this process yeah. of deliberately creating a narrative that will then become part of the shared national memory of the, of the nation, you know, that does what you say it does. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, I want to make, uh, you know, I think I made the point, you know, the, the, the big main stage uh, story of American nationhood, that is what we call the SVH, is a process that began even before the, before the fact of nationhood was achieved. The mainstream big stage narratives reflected that commitment, or I should say non-commitment to either black freedom or equality, uh, but instead reflected uh, the same reality of white nationalism mirrored in the telling of the story with the idea of progress added to uh, ameliorate the continued existence of slavery for decades. Uh, and as I'm talking now at the time of the American Revolution, you know, slavery was not abolished, despite the, you know, the uh, inspiring words in the Declaration of Independence about natural rights and equality. As we know, slavery wasn't abolished, would continue to exist for decades. Uh, and the story would be told in such a way as to encompass that in a rubric of, uh, you know, a progressive narrative and assign credit to white sovereign interests, mostly in the case of abolishing slavery to Abraham Lincoln, as we've said many times, the telling of the freedom story, which now offered as evidence the abolition story, the historical case to be made for the joining of the American Revolution with white nationalism in particular in our analysis and understanding is overwhelming. Look, again, this is not, I'm not peddling, Josh, some kind of conspiracy, you know, mm -hmm. here to say that the original stories, the first stories of the nation, the first stories that, that, that uh, you know, American people began telling themselves, white American people who were in the, you know, uh, in the seats of power and wealth, and uh, and law and governing and even cultural, you know, the cultural nature that the stories they told themselves were wedded to what we would call. They didn't always call it this. They had other names for it, 
uh, white nationalism. That is, the story from yeah. the beginning has been encoded as a story of white nationalism that became not only part of the shared collective public memory of the nation, but then you know codified and even sacralized. That is made sacred, you know, mm -hmm. in in the teaching and in the uh, ceremonial observances of the nation, such as, you know, rise and remove your caps for the playing of the national anthem kind of thing, right? Um, right? And what we often miss, I think, is that those stories become so emblematic of the national history that we accept them as, quote, you know, the way things really were. Mm -hmm. um, and that uh, and they don't even seem necessarily themselves authored. The thing with designer memories is after a time, everybody forgets who actually wrote this. You know, who actually yeah. said this? Where does this actually come from? They seem to proceed according to what? The kind of invisible hand of history, a kind of unauthored, omniscient narrator. You know, and that's the way yeah. history, national history has often been written, right? I mean, there might be an author's name on the book, but really it's done in that kind of third person, omniscient narrator style where history is just happening, Right. Uh, and you can lose that, especially as the stories seem to transcend authorship and migrate into the ether of historical truth, you know, and become narrated in the voice of an omniscient narrator. And yet, and yet here's, you know, the absolute fundamental pivot for us today is that these stories, these national stories that make up these designer memories, you know, are not simply some self-generated naturally occurring fruit of some organic history arising like a bounty from the harvest of some uh, earth of truth. How's that? <laughs> I get that. They are authored, man. They are artificial constructs. They have to be made up. Imagine, and authored by individuals with certain basic interests, which they wish to represent in the storytelling. And before the stories are even written or told, Right. They have to be implauded in the minds of their authors. That is, their creators with certain specific or, or overarching. I mean, think about it. If you're going to tell a story, right, of something that happened to you, you might do the kind of, well, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, this happened. But right. that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a police blotter, you know, that says at 845, you know, something happened. We're talking about a narrative and the active narrative is the part that assigns meaning to a story, right? And, and, and so you have to decide what kind of story am I going to tell? Is it a tragedy? Is it a comedy? Is it a romance? I mean, there's only really, you know, variations, so many variations on that basic kind of narrative structure that usually get implauded into something like a national story. And you could probably guess, Josh, which are the most popular for national stories. They tend to be romances, <laughs> yeah. right? The romance of the nation, the story of progress, of, of heroes and that kind of, you know, maybe if you're feeling magnanimous and you want to acknowledge something like slavery or something, you could say, well, it's more like a comedy. You know, sure, there's a lot of conflict, but by the end, what happens? We're redeemed, right? Getting and along. everything works. Everything works out exactly, right? I was, I was exactly. thinking like these redemption stories are, are are the the most honest version of it, or the redemption stories at least, because they say at least there's something to be redeemed. But many of the stories don't even have the redemption part. It's just this like this straight line. The seed was always there, and all we had to do was, <laughs> was watch it grow. Really try, try to tie it off or something, you know? It just right, gets right. a 
absorbed by osmosis or something. And, and make no mistake, all these designer memories that we all know about American history, I'm going to give you one example to finish with here in a second, is that they were, they were implauded by their authors, you know, deliberately. This wasn't a coincidence. Again, this didn't grow from the earth of some organic history. That's not how history works. Uh, history is a narrative art, you know, and it has to be, in effect, prefigured by the storytellers. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you just end up with, again, one damn thing after another, which, I mean, you know, some, some people think that that's what history is, but we know that, mm -hmm. that really history as the narrative art does far more than just explain what happened. It also attributes meaning to what happened. It, it makes decisions about what's worth knowing and isn't knowing who's in, who's out, who are the heroes, who are the villains. Yeah, that's, that's the narrative art. And that's what goes into making the designer memories. Because if you're trying to create stories for a nation, you know, from the blank slate, as Thomas Paine said, the blank sheet, you know, that America could write upon. And that's, by, by the way, one of the conceits, and I won't go into it, but this idea that you know, undergirding American exceptionalism is America was different because we had no previous history, unlike the old countries of yep. Europe. You know, I mean, the Romans create, could look back. create a new legacy instead of living somebody else's living off somebody else's legacy, right? Right. That unlike all the other nations, we were starting from scratch and it could be anything we wanted. And who we decided to be was what a freedom loving people dedicated to natural rights or something. Well, okay. You know, if you believe that, then I got some swamp land in Florida I might interest you in. But, but look, leaving that aside for a second, the designer memories that come forward, you know, that are shared as national memories and the storytelling of who we are, you know, they're very hard to dislodge. I mean, what, you know, they get defended once they, they get in, they get defended as heritage or even in the case of, you know, Texas and some of these as law, don't you dare tell another story, in other words. But either way, that defense can be quite emotional and quite personal to the memory holders whose own identities become wrapped up in them. Confederate statues, yeah. anybody? You know, this is our heritage, say the defenders of the Confederate statues. Right up to what? Right up to the point of violence. You're talking about Charlottesville. Those yeah. were a bunch of goons determined to use violence to defend their version of history. Was it? Wasn't that Absolutely. pretty much what went down? Yeah. So let's, yeah, let's look at one example here uh, that everybody knows, you know, of um, something called the Boston Massacre. I'm going to assume most people have heard of that. If you've come up through the public education system or been part of the national storytelling tradition in any way, you've probably heard of the Boston Massacre. Was it, am, I, am I on solid ground there? Oh, it's central. Like it's, it's yeah, it's one of those benchmarks okay. you have to get to. You don't get to yeah, that, and you don't know America. Yeah, I don't get wrong with my premise, but I, I want to say that it's been typically <laughs> right at the center of the narrative of the standard version history, you know. Uh, and it's often used as what? As a justification of that binary, us versus them, right? In that case, the Patriots versus the British, you know, the American colonists, in other words, and the British, say, the Redcoats or, you know, and, and this, this was a fundamental, you know, sort of, story that becomes a designer memory in that narrative tradition. Um, mm. Paul Revere, turns out, uh, who's also famous as a meme in the, in the poetry of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow uh, in the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. I don't know if you had to learn that in school. I did. I had to memorize, because that's the only reason I know it. The, Listen, my children, and you shall hear the Midnight Ride of 
Paul Revere. Okay. Well, there was an actual Paul Revere, okay, mm -hmm. um, who himself became one of the original memory designers when he tweaked and fudged a bunch of facts in his popular engraving, and he was an engraver by trade in 1770 of the event we know as the Boston Massacre. We know it as the Boston Massacre because Revere gave it that name. Well, actually, he called it the Bloody Massacre, but it happened in Boston, so you sort of see how it becomes a Boston Massacre. And in an age before copyright laws governed such things, Revere simply copied the work of another Boston engraver, a dude named Henry Pelham, whose original drawing was the first and only known original image of the event we know as the Boston Massacre. He then advertised the sale, that is, Revere did, copied, Pelham lent him the, the I mean, there's a whole sort of substory, lent Revere a copy of his drawing. Revere turned it into a copper plate engraving, which he then could sell for money, by the way, copies mm. or prints, we'd call them prints, of his famous Boston Massacre uh, image. And by the way, we'll put it up on the, you know, on the um, the Hag website for folks. But I would guess many people have probably seen it before. It's the classic yeah. image of the the six British redcoat soldiers firing point blank into a crowd of Bostonians, seemingly unarmed, uh, defenseless victims, as one historian called it, the slaughter of the innocents, you know, by a brutal, tyrannical regime, right? Uh, yeah. That then became a catalyst for the larger revolutionary effort to uh, secede from England, to declare independence, that is, secede from England and become, well, the United States of America. Now, he advertised, so he plagiarized the image from his erstwhile friend, right, who was none too happy about it, by the way. Henry Pelham wrote a letter <laughs> to Revere. He thought, he said, I thought it impossible as I knew you was not capable of doing it unless you copied it from mine. And I thought I had entrusted it in the hands of a person who had more regard to the dictates of honor and justice than to take the undue advantage you have done of the confidence and trust I reposed in you. <laughs> well, that's a true American foundational story, right? <laughs> What's more American than that? <laughs> Plagiarism, absolutely. Get yep. to the press first, you know, sell your prints before anybody else. So he, he advertised the sale of his prints he made on March 26, 1770, just three weeks after the massacre and a week before Henry Pelham was able to sell copies of his own. So all this is happening in the mart of commerce. We might call it does a patriotic designer memory you know, by sale or something, right? Um, right? Revere did another very American thing, by the way, combining entrepreneurial zeal with patriotic opportunism, in other words. Um, and and it, it was a faithful plagiarizing of the original Pelham drawing uh, and the many, which included, by the way, the many factual inaccuracies of the event itself that were then preserved for most importantly, and I won't belabor it, but most importantly in that famous engraving, it becomes a kind of catalyst for revolution is uh, although actually it's well, okay, I'll come back to that. I'm, I'm trying to make two points at one. One is perhaps most important inaccuracy and in Revere's uh, engraving, famous engraving was depiction of British soldiers coldly, deliberately and a point blank range firing into a crowd of defenseless civilians um, in his later criminal defense. And by the way, this is sort of the classic defense that the police always use you know, in yeah. shooting, right? In his later criminal defense of the British soldiers during their murder trial, defense attorney and future founding father, John Adams presented evidence showing how the soldiers had been assaulted by riotous and probably drunk locals 
with rocks, snowballs, chunks of ice and clubs and fired upon the civilians only in their own defense. That was that was Adam's argument. Unbothered <laughs> by such evidence, Revere added uh, another inflammatory design element, an imaginary sign reading Butcher's Hall in the background above the soldiers' heads. Another too subtle editorial comment. No, no such sign then existed on King Street in Boston where the shooting took place, what's now State Street in Boston, but it was an effective imaginary that enhanced the image's unmistakable editorial meaning and propaganda value. So what's my point here? My, my point is saying that one of the fundamental designer memories of American history, and the reason I call it a designer memory of the birth of the nation, is that it was deliberately not only plagiarized, but fudged and tweaked and with a lot of artistic license, right? Um, kind of editorially formed to represent what? A certain patriotic view of what happened that night on March 5th uh, in Boston. And, and Paul Revere's celebrated version of what he labeled the bloody massacre was a propaganda masterstroke, right? I mean, right down to the spin doctored name of, well, massacre. Others at the yeah. time supplied different labels, including, quote, a most unfortunate affair. Quote, an unhappy quarrel or the late tumult <laughs> or simply the riot on King Street. Outside of Massachusetts itself, the massacre was not received with the same outrage, even though Revere's engraving was deliberately designed to provoke that outrage. By one count, news of the event sparked no special outrage or interest in six of the 13 colonies. Clearly, the event meant different things to different people. And each label offered its own targeted meaning to reflect the stances taken by various political players with more than just two sides, by the way, weighing in with sympathies, antagonism sort of factored accordingly. Revere's chosen title, The Bloody Massacre, enjoyed, however, a propaganda advantage over the others with its simple reductionist us versus them tragic drama emplotment of the story. His engraving had heroic martyrs standing in for the emerging patriot cause uh, while British soldiers filling their roles as dastardly villains representing the tyranny of empire. In reality, the political battle lines were not that clear. As a future founding father, John Adams could literally defend the soldiers in court while indicting mm -hmm. the erstwhile patriotic martyrs as a lawless rabble. <laughs> this is how memories get design, right, Josh? <laughs> right. Yes. Um, if you want to understand how how impactful this designer memory was, I don't know if we've talked about this, but this was years ago. I got an email out of the blue from a student who was in a U.S. history class, and his professor had told him, I assume it was at, at our college, but he wasn't clear on this. He just kind of emailed me again, uh, mm -hmm. not knowing who I was, and I have no idea who he was, um, mm -hmm. saying, I'm in a history class, and my professor is claiming that the Boston massacre wasn't actually a massacre. And I guess he wanted me to back him up on that, but um, I didn't give in. I, I responded to him. Uh, I don't remember what I said, but basically, you know, what's, who, who defines what a massacre is, something like that. But I'd like to think it was your class that, <laughs> that he was responding to. I have no, no evidence of that. Uh, but it's just, it's just funny how, how outraged he was that, that his professor would claim that this was not a massacre. And he had to then stand up for those the, the, the victims of, of this massacre that he was sure had been perpetrated. 
Yeah, look, I mean, for years, I, you know, I've, because it's, it's too juicy, you know, to leave alone when you're talking about the revolution, mm -hmm. right, you know, um, but it's taken on new significance to me because of, of, of this, um, this appeal to history that's made by these, you know, these racist killers, you know, um, that somehow yeah. this is who we are. I mean, because there's more to the story. I mean, look, um, thanks to the strenuous defense that Adams provided in the actual trial, all but two of the British soldiers involved in the shooting were actually acquitted uh, with another couple of them uh, found guilty of lesser manslaughter charges and released. So the, yeah, I mean, the police got off, <laughs> you might say, uh, but how could, so how could such a kind of clear cut case of massacre as Revere framed it result in the acquittal or slap on the wrist of all the principal players? You know, in other words, something's going on here, right? And the answer in part is, well, John Adams played the race card, you know, because one of those who was killed in the Boston Massacre was a fellow by the name of Crispus Attucks, who I think is also, as a, a person who's been brought back into the designer memories, reasonably well-known because... I think so, yeah. Uh, the name is also very just memorable, but but definitely right. I think, you know, that he is definitely a, a character, a known character in this, in this yeah. story at this point. Yeah, and thanks to abolitionists in the 19th century who basically resurrected what would have been otherwise been a very obscure figure, Crispus Attucks, we don't know much about him. I mean, you could write in a short paragraph everything that the documentary evidence gives us about Crispus Attucks. And yet uh, a guy named Mitch Cahoon, an a American history professor, has written an entire book about Crispus Attucks in the memory tradition of the United States. So here's a guy talking about a blank slate. You know, he was mixed race often depicted as black. His father was probably African. His mother may have been um, Algonquin-speaking native. Um, but he was depicted by John Adams in the trial with all the racial tropes. You know, Adams said a stout mulatto fellow whose very looks was enough to terrify any person. Jeez. What had not the soldiers then to fear? This was the behavior of addicts to whose mad behavior in all probability, the dreadful carnage of that night is chiefly to be ascribed. So that's addicts playing the race card, playing out, trading off the fears of white jurors in Boston, that the motley crew, the rabble, the mixed race, black marauder, you know, running amok or something that the soldiers had no choice. Um, so, so either way, I mean, the account of the, the Boston Massacre was tailored, was curated uh, for one effect by Paul Revere and for another effect, chiefly the defense uh, presented by John Adams to get his clients off. Um, but in the court of public opinion ever since, Josh, Revere's engraving won out. You know, it's Revere's engraving that becomes the designer memory in the SVH because it offered a clear guilty verdict. Right. The British Empire was guilty. The Patriots were righteous. As the Massachusetts Historical Society website notes, Revere's bootleg copy, quote, continues even today to serve as the popular conception of a historical moment. And that's really the key point I want to make about addicts, also Christmas addicts, the malleability of memory and race, because what I'm suggesting is that our view is derived from the designer memories in the SVH is a failure or breakdown of memory. And what do I mean? In Paul Revere's engraving, guess who is not depicted as black? Crispus Attucks. Right. He's whitened. <laughs> There's a, a whitewashing yeah. in Paul Revere's. So that the Patriots are uniformly 
white people. Yeah. Are uniformly white people defending their liberties against a tyranny? Um, you know, the story of that, that reminds us that the first designer memories of the American Revolution were given expression by those who lived it. And over time, as they were copied, recited, performed, commemorated, memor memorialized, and reenacted, came to be regarded as natural, truthful, and historic. From the beginning, these designer memories were vested with the meanings of patriotism, such that learning them was itself an act of patriotism. And once learned, they are hard to unlearn and their meaning difficult to shake. But look, however much we festoon the American Revolution and patriotic bunting and inspire our, our ears with the solemn oration of America's founding fathers, the plain truth of the SVH story we tell ourselves it wasn't authored from the ink and quill of some, what, sober, unblinking, <laughs> impartial scribe of history, but from the desire of various partisan groups like like Revere's local Boston, you know, Bostonian clique of, of uh, patriots and interested parties to beat their rivals to the press, just as Paul Revere had done and established their spin on, quote, what really happened in the American Revolution. And to see the design element in the memories they foster, to see them, in other words, as design memories, we have to divorce ourselves from the familiar. And remember that most of those memories, which seem so familiar to us, did not yet exist in their form as stories at the time of the American Revolution, uh, certainly not as shared memory stories, though in our memories now and ever since, the Boston Massacre remains a stepping stone of revolution. Um, even John Adams is eventually going to turn around. John Adams, the man who, who defended, right, uh, the, the soldiers in Boston who rejected the, the mob, as he called them, you know, the rabble crew of what Revere claimed were patriots. Uh, Adams will, after the American Revolution in 1786, 16 years after the Boston Massacre, but only three years after victory in the War of Independence and three years since the last public observance of the Boston Massacre in Boston, because once July 4th comes around, they'll switch to July 4th commemorations mm -hmm. and forget about the Boston Massacre. Adams himself proclaimed that on the 5th of March, 1770, the foundation of American independence was laid. Mm. In other words, this is a founding father now designing a memory for a new nation that yep. 16 years earlier, as a defense lawyer trying to make a buck, dismissed the whole thing as a rabble crew, as right. a as a as a as a, a great, you know, illegal mob riot. Uh, but uh, yeah, his thinking was transformed, and the and and therefore then the designer memory was well on its way to becoming rooted, although sanitized and whitewashed free. You know, they won't discover Crispus Attucks as a black man again until the abolitionists at the time of the Civil War, black abolitionists resurrect him as a patriotic black hero of the American tradition. And then again, in the 1960s, during the civil rights movement, the black power movement, you'll get Crispus Attucks once again intoned as an example of, you know, of black patriotism, that kind of thing. Um, but I would suggest, you know, that the fundamental nature of that designer memory, that simple us versus them binary of the American Revolution has won out, you know, countless times in the SVH. 
Uh, I sent you a thing the other day about Schoolhouse Rock, remember? <laughs> Schoolhouse yeah. Rock in the 1970s, the little animated three-minute history lessons that I watched as a kid, you know, in front of my TV on Saturday mornings, hearing the sing-song three-minute history narratives, you know, including the, the ride of Paul Revere and the shot yeah. heard around the world, you know, until it became the earworm that cinched the designer memory and the basic binary of us versus them and my personal historical frame yeah. of reference. You know, no, no matter that the, the you know, nation which Paul Revere supposedly set on its ear did not yet exist at the time of his ride. Schoolhouse Rock was a funky, folky musical history lesson inspired by the psychology of catchy commercial jingles. Um, and, uh, you know, they showed only white folks, Josh, uh, at Lexington and Concord and the Battle of Bunker Hill. And we know from the evidence that there were black militia members of both Lexington and Concord and the Battle of Bunker Hill. We know their names. We know who they were. They were enslaved, given their freedom ultimately for fighting, emancipated for fighting in those, um, you know, those formative moments of what becomes the national story. Are they remembered? Not in the Schoolhouse Rock cartoons, they're not. Only little white cartoon characters are doing the work of creating who we are and, and where we come from. So, you know, here's what I want to say. When we peek behind the curtain of historical production, you know, it allows us an understanding of how this process works and moreover why that process so in, often involved, in this case, the erasing of black lives. We could also say the erasing of native lives. Uh, designer memories require no vast conspiratorial design to become whitewashed and embedded in the SVH under the guise of white nationalism, patriotism, and politics. Reimagine the history and shape the designer memory. In the case of Schoolhouse Rock, let's add corporate profits for ABC. You know, uh, those catchy Cold War cartoons offered a thin take on the standard designer memory of the American Revolution. And since few black lives are present in most of the designer memories, they did not find any presence either in the cartoonish simulacrum of the Saturday morning cartoons. So, yeah, that's the story we've been telling ourselves for now quite a long time. And, um, you know, we, we, we think sometimes that these designer memories, they become inviolable and sacred. And we might even pass laws to protect them, these whitewashed poetical or even sing-songy remembrances of who we are and where we came from. But they become, they take an emotional hold and they become fodder in the hands, you know, of a supremacist, right? A white supremacist who who actively, what, who who makes those story narratives active in his, his defense, like a, what, a modern day Minuteman or something by shooting, you know, unarmed black people at a supermarket. Um, and at this very moment, those stories being legally mandated in legislatures and boards of education, you know, um, in their own way, have long taught that story of racial replacement in reverse, you know, with the whitewashing and the erasing of black lives and native uh, lives. Uh, yeah, these are the stories that make us sick, Josh, uh, uh, you know, instead of bringing us together. I'm afraid of Americans I'm afraid of the world I'm afraid I can't help it I'm afraid I can't I'm afraid of Americans I'm afraid of the world I'm afraid I can't help it I'm afraid I can't 
that was a, that was a really beautiful um, segment, Chris. I, I really enjoyed that. It did make me think that we maybe need a our own hag uh, cartoon, kind of Schoolhouse Rock <laughs> hag version, right? To to improve these stories and get across something a little more truthful than than what they did. I I'd still love to remember the song. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. If it worked then, it could work in the in the 21st century. I think. Um, so I want to take us out here. Uh, by talking a little bit about um, you know, a, a story in, in Indian history, in modern Indian history, in fact, post-colonial Indian history, um, relating to the assassination of, of Mohandas Gandhi um, and, and kind of the, the broader reaction to it, um, both on the part of his friend and, and disciple in some ways, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, but then also uh, the man and then the man who, who ultimately murdered Gandhi and then the uh, the, the political party that kind of descended from that, uh, because it does give give us a a lesson in in the challenge of of creating memories, right? Creating, trying to create memories that express, you know, ideals um, that are other than about violence, about exclusion, about uh, ethno nationalism, and you know, the story that we see in India is one in which we begin with, you know, in August fifteenth, nineteen forty seven, the creation of independent Indian Pakistan, um, based around the INC, the Indian National Congress, and the, their ideal that that India would be a, a, a new nation defined by something other than kind of Western-style nationalism. The idea was that the, the kind of pillars of, of the Indian nation would not be culture or caste or, or religion, but it would be anti-imperialism, you know, the thing that had drawn together you know, so many people in India over the previous 40 plus years in particular, um, based around the idea of social justice, Nehru and the, the INC are very much a, a socialist, um, you know, plan to develop India, but then also uh, what they refer to, refer to as juridical equality, um, taking the castes who had been separated by um, by these, these hard lines and kind of uh, late imperial Indian uh, history, and then removing those juridical boundaries and essentially creating a, a nation of equals. Just five months, a little more than five months after um, Nehru gives his uh, tryst with destiny speech, an amazing speech in his own right, uh, announcing the independence of India, Gandhi was murdered on, on uh, January 30th, 1948. And so it's left to Nehru to essentially express the sorrow of this new nation. He actually um, gets up in front of uh, an audience and extemporaneously gives this incredible speech. And I, I want to read a little bit of this and then we'll, I want to talk a little bit further about the uh, what comes after. He says, among other things, um, in reference to the assassination, that there has been enough of poison spread in this country during the past years and months. And this poison has had an effect on people's minds. We must face this poison. We must root out this poison. And we must face all the perils that accompany us, uh, that, I'm sorry, that encompass us. It's a really beautiful statement because it's not the traditional po politician thing, you know, but we've heard so much of in the past years of, you know, this is not who we are. Um, he's, he's not trying to turn the assassination into this, this, uh, you know, this kind of blip that came out of nowhere. He's facing up to the fact that the assassination happened for a reason. It happened because Indians, um, including, I think he would say himself and his, his party, had allowed this poison to spread, that, that poison of ethno-nationals and that poison of supremacy, that poison of violence. Um, 
And so as he tried to make sense of the murder of his, his friend, uh, his mentor, and a hero to, to this nation that was still so new, um, he really struggled to express his understanding of the past. And this is why I find his speech so um, so insightful and, and, and so inspiring in some ways. He says, at one point, you know, kind of overcome by grief, the light has gone out of our lives and there's darkness everywhere. He then later amended this. So he says that, and then again, ext- extemporaneously, he's just talking from his heart. He says, the light has gone out, I said, and yet I was wrong. For the light that shone this country was no ordinary light. The light that illumined this country for m- these many years will illumine this country for many more years, end quote. Essentially, he's saying that Gandhi, the man, may have been gone, but his message, his spirit, and his influence was woven into what India was and would be. And that's the hope, right? That, that Gandhi was gone, but ultimately he would never be absent from, um, from what was to, to, to come. Unfortunately, the fabric that made up India had many threads, and those of Gandhi were accompanied by those that helped produce his murderer, Natharam Godes. Um, Godes was a product of the long gestating Hindu nationalist movement based on the ideology, which is still very present today, of Hindutva which means essentially Hinduness, like the kind of Hindu essence. It's a, a kind of Hindu nationalist idea. Godes cite Gandhi as a traitor who failed to understand that only Hinduism could provide Indians with the incentive to national solidarity, cohesion, and greatness. To Nehru then, this horrific act was not just a single event so it was, since it was part of who Indians were. And what he's saying in that initial quote that I read is that unless they face this fact, then it was also going to define who they would be in the future. So his injunction to root out this poison and face all the perils that encompass us is a desire to essentially nip this in the bud now, not let it fester, not let it continue into the future. The Hindu Mahasabha party of which Godes was a part, the, the, the assassin Godes was a part of, a, a, again, a Hindu nationalist party called the Mahasabha party, um, essentially broke up following Godes' arrest and his trial. Um, it was kind of delegitimized by this act of violence. But by the 1950s, it had reconstituted itself under a new name, uh, still a Hindu nationalist party, uh, but free from this name that was associated with, with this act of murder. Um, over the next many decades, it would continue to develop. Uh, it would uh, you know, go through many different iterations, but then reemerged as a new party around 1980. It was now called the Bharatiya Janata Party known as the BJP. Today, people might recognize that name because the BJP is a ruling party in India under Prime Minister Modi. Um, And members of this party have sought over the last number of years to rehabilitate Godes as a true Indian patriot. At the same time, as they try to rehabilitate Godes, they increasingly are singling out Gandhi as a traitor to the Indian nation. So again, what this all shows is this this difficulty of of creating memories that produce the outcome the nation wants. You know what what you were suggesting is the designer memory of of the U.S. is meant to express this triumphal uh, white nationalist version of the story. Nehru, on the other hand, was trying to create this you know social justice anti imperialist message, but ultimately he was unable. He and his followers were unable to ultimately make that memory win out. And, and, you know, in the end, Nehru kind of understood this. He understood the danger of memory, the danger of, you know, extricating ourselves from the past, 
because in one of the lines that uh, I always come back to, this is one he, he, he states in his Independence Day speech, August 15th, 1947, after, you know, regaling his audience with, you know, the hope for the future, um, what Indians had overcome and what they would overcome um, as time moved on, he stopped and reflected and said, the past clings to us still. This has been History Against the Grain. I will remind everybody, please rate and review us. I don't often say this, but please rate and review. Please um, tell your friends and colleagues about us and look out for new episodes in the future in which we'll try to be on a more regular schedule. But Chris, it was great being back here talking with you about this stuff and can't wait to do it again. Absolutely, Josh. Take care, everybody. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another one.